Writing that piece on Newham being the worst affected area in May was a bit of a whirlwind because the ONS data came out at 10am and I started digging through it and I saw immediately that Newham had the worst COVID-19 death rate. Within an hour of that data coming out, I was door knocking in that death cluster, doing that as safely as possible. Of course, you know, I had gloves and a mask and I would knock on the door and then walk back out to the pavement. So I'd be doing the interviews with people on their doorstep, but me on the pedestrian pavement. If we take our minds back to March, this virus is being called the equal leveller and people would say something like, you know, this virus doesn't discriminate. Um, and that's the tone that people were taking at the beginning of the pandemic. And I just thought it was so important to show that's not the case. Like, yes, the virus itself doesn't discriminate, but it moves and travels in a community that does. My name's Amna Modin. I'm a news reporter at The Guardian and I live in Newham. And this was the first place that me and my family lived together when we came to the UK as asylum seekers. We were kind of separated for a little while as a result of the Somali civil war. And I saw my dad again for the first time in like so many years. And where I kind of really considered my life, like the life that I have now beginning. I feel huge hometown pride that I'd never thought I'd feel as someone who was a child refugee. The very concept of home and where I belong is going to be a lifelong issue for me. I just don't have that in Newham. <laughs> just because it fulfills and satisfies everything that I want. I love that Newham is one of the most ethnically diverse places in England and Wales. I love that our Christmas panto is, you know, a black girl with braids. She gets to be uh, Rapunzel. I love that you walk, you feel like you're in the middle of the city, but then if you cycle five minutes further east and you get to Wanstead Flats and you can walk up to Epping Forest, it's some of the most beautiful green spaces in London. There's nowhere else that I would rather have been brought up, to be honest. Like, I love it. I I just feel blessed. And I think, as well, as a black woman, like, growing up somewhere in Newham, within the UK, was such a blessing, you know, to go to a school with kids from many different backgrounds was a blessing. 72 languages were spoken by the kids at that school, you know? That's amazing, like we have so much to be proud of. I think when I think Newham, I think survival, you know, and I think resilience because people are resilient in Newham because they've had to have been. Also, the kids here do very, very well against all odds. How are you living in overcrowded housing, which is in really bad condition, and then you're going to school and getting AIDS? How is that possible when it's because of we're all trying to raise each other up in a lot of ways? That's how I felt, especially when I was growing up here. It's hard. I'm not romanticising it, but it's a hard place. But where you've got a pressure cooker, you're going to get diamonds in it. There's this Audrey Lord essay that has this thing about a merciless light, you know, it just feels like COVID has shone 
a merciless light on these inequalities that have been there and have been exacerbated, I would say, in the last 10 years, since the crash and the Tories came to power. And I think Newham's never been a wealthy borough, but I think it's had a lot of wealth in terms of community wealth. Whereas growing up, there was a lot of poverty. Right now, it feels as though like it's more claustrophobic in that the poverty is still there, but you're right next to something which is much more high-end, much more luxury. There's a very strong community, one that's based on resistance in Newham. I think people have been really strong to challenge the frustrations they've had at the way gentrification has played over the last decade. Whenever I speak to friends from school, the vast majority can't afford to buy a house in the area. Probably can't really afford private rents either, can just about manage if you have a decent enough job and the majority of your wages goes to rent or if you have a housing benefit, then you can probably rent privately. Again, we know that the private rented sector is like mad in so many different ways. So that's our main outlet for living in the area. And then there's the third option, council housing, which, again, isn't happening for a lot of people. To get a council house is like winning the lottery. So what options does that give everyone that I know from school, including myself? So my name's Asif. I'm a medical student, raised, grew up in Newham, from Maryland, living in Forest Gate. I don't think it's a big ask to want to live in the area you grew up in. No one's asking for like a mansion or proper luxury living. It's just, we'd like to live in the area where we grew up, where our parents are. We wanted to focus on Newham as the first branch of the union because of how messed up the housing crisis is, specifically in this borough. And one of the factors that we considered is that about 40% of people in Newham are renting privately. Back in 1991, only 7% of people rented privately. And it just shows how much of our social housing has been privatised over that time. And that's many more people in insecure housing that we need to fight for. My name is Amina Gachinga. I am a Newham resident and an organiser with London Renters' Union. London Renters' Union is a members-led union of renters across London. And we have a branch here in Newham, so we're called the Newham and Leytonstone branch. And the purpose of the union is to challenge the injustice of the housing crisis and the housing system and how it is rigged in the favour of landlords, investors, and how it doesn't work for the majority of people, especially working class people, especially black and brown people, I think, especially with like rents rising and cost of everything in the area rising, much more than our wages have risen, has meant like we feel much more strangled in terms of what we can and can't do. So much of your money just leaves your account straight away at the end of the month, the second it comes in. Let's not forget that before the pandemic, people were already struggling to pay their rent. On average, a new renter will pay between 60-70% of their wages towards rent which is just an extraordinary figure. The type of housing you live in, how you live, affects your health hugely. And when it comes to community, again, where you live, whether or not you can live in your area, affects everything. 
for like kids and stuff, school, if you're moved to like temporary accommodation in Harlow, which is like proper far away, or like Hayes or somewhere that's completely out of London, that's gonna affect how you perform as a child in education. I had a friend that moved, his family got moved to like an area that was like two hours away from school. And these were like kids, his younger siblings were like five, six, going to school like on a two hour bus, coming back two hours again. That's gonna affect their grades, isn't it? So many of the things that intersect and like band all of our struggles together is housing specifically in this specific day and age, isn't it? because of where we're living, how we're living, what we're living under. If we look at temporary accommodation, for example, in Newham, that really exemplifies what I'm talking about as the housing crisis, because you have 14,500 people in temporary accommodation in Newham alone, and in the whole of Manchester, it's 3,000. So during lockdown, what I've seen and what we've seen as a union is that more and more renters are falling into debt because either they've been furloughed and therefore their wages have been cut by 20% or they haven't been covered by furlough. We have a lot of people who have no recourse to public funds in this borough. So if you don't have any recourse to public funds, you therefore can't get any support from the government. So this means that many people are falling into poverty. And what that means for their housing situation is that they're in very precarious situation with their landlord, who often is trying to harass them out of their home. As we've seen, I think we've had three people who have been illegally evicted in our branch during this time, which has been very distressing and traumatising for those people. And we have a lot of people that don't know what their rights are and think that a landlord can just ask them to leave and then they will have to go. And so it's been really a crisis point for many families who don't know what the future holds for them. And obviously that creates a lot of emotional distress a lot of uncertainty and a feeling of being failed, you know, or not mattering. My name's Yeshin and I set up DOST Centre for Young Refugees and Migrants in 2000 in Newham. I'm now an activist academic my research is with young people with no papers, irregular immigration status, and I have a very long relationship with Newham. I was born and brought up here and I have lived most of my life here. Now, I remember when I started OST, it was when we started in about the late 90s, early 2000s, and at the time we thought, oh, it's really hard for, you know, for people that arrive and migrants or claiming asylum, or particularly young people that arrived on their own. I mean, at least those kind of very basics were in place, you know, like there was a kind of acknowledgement that people were people and children were children. But I just think the deliberate kind of hostile environment has really shifted things. I think even before COVID and the lockdown, some of the services that I have been a part of and have had to access through childhood and life were already on the brinks of being overstretched. Just an example of London Black Women's Project, which is a service that I access as a young woman, and without which I don't know where I would have been today. They were my only support network growing up when I was being referred to pupils referral unit, or when I was in trouble with the police because I was a young carer, and therefore no one was able to pick up that this is a child with difficulties. 
My name is Asma Gol and I have lived in Yemen all my life and I am an independent children's occupational therapist. But it was again because of services like London Black Women's Project. I am the product of their support and their hard work which now means that I'm able to be the person that I am in the community. So it makes sense to invest in these services that are doing the specialist work that know these communities that understand and rather than demonize them support these communities and families and individuals into more healthy ways of being in life in a sensitive way in a gentle way in a generous way rather than there is something wrong with you i had to leave home i went into care for a year and i had to go into a refuge because there was no space in care what would have happened to me i would have probably end up going to one of the gang members houses or slept in the graveyard like my sister did if we look at our prison systems or if we look at the care systems the young people or the children that are in there are black and people of color and so i think having those services is vital is crucial is a lifeline that needs to be invested in valued and acknowledged for their existence because without which you're going to continuously have a society that is distorted and broken ONS data was very data driven just said these numbers and I wanted to show up who exactly is dying which community is being specifically impacted and I'm really glad that I did because again it just kind of showed this virus is completely tearing apart the Asian and black community in New York as well as the ethnic minorities like the white working class are being quite significantly impacted those who are on frontline jobs are being significantly impacted and I think that was one of the first pieces that really moved away from this idea that everyone's having a same pandemic you know there were people who didn't know anyone who had a case there were people who their biggest thing was about not being able to find flour to make bread and it just felt like there was these two very different worlds happening at the same time and the turnaround for that story was really really tight it came out at 10am i had to file by 3 or 4 so it was just like going out there doing as much door knocking as possible getting a photographer down seeing who would be up for photos and then rushing back home to put that all together into a piece that kind of made sense the response i had to it was really taken back i think it got over like a million hits within 24 hours it really kind of resonated deeply but i spoke about this have and have not that exists in newham you know there were people in newham who were utterly stunned that this is what people were going through the fact that this high death rate was happening in their borough was really shocking to them having worked in school for the last 10 or so years i've noticed that families have just really hit rock bottom in terms of finance and we've got families that are struggling during the pandemic we were given out food parcels and it's quite heartbreaking to go and see the children we see that are quite happy at school to see some of the conditions they live in overcrowded lack of money no food in some situations quite heartbreaking for me the no recourse to public funds is something that impacts us every day and you see that families are hungry we're given away clothing we're given away uniform and these are just basic things my name's julian hiller i'm a learning mentor at sandringham primary school in forestgate in london i was born in newham over 40 years ago 
I've worked and lived in Newham for the last 25 years. I'm proud to be from Newham, as is my family. My mum and dad came to Newham in the 1950s from the Caribbean. We're at a time where we've been asked in the summer to conduct Zoom classes or online teaching, and not every child's got access to a computer. Not every child has got Wi-Fi in their home. And I do think those in power and those above maybe just take it for granted that, wait, hey, everybody must have Wi-Fi. Everybody's got a laptop, haven't they? You know, they don't need state-of-the-art equipment. They just need equipment that's going to work. I think they do need to know if we want children to go back to school and to study well, we need to provide for them food, basics. And if they're going to be at home at any stage, we need to help the parents with the technology to make sure they get, while they're out of school, that education and that help. The government, they did not handle it well at all, especially with A-level grades. There were loads of people that were predicted A-stars, A's, and, then they were, ended and up they were like B's and C's. It was worse if you're from like a bad background in terms especially of like the area, yeah, them. like Newham and like the area you live in because they based it on previous grades. But then it's weird because it's this rhetoric that they always say that, oh, no matter where you're from, you can build up and yeah. be great and be successful. But then when it comes to a situation like this, they throw that out the window and it's suddenly, oh, well, your area's notoriously done worse. So you do worse. And that's not the case because there's so many people from schools like the ones that we go to, that go to Oxford, go to Cambridge, yeah. go to like Ivy League schools in the States. My name is Shah Khan. I'm in year 12 and I've grown up in you my whole life. My name is Ayat. I'm in year 12, I'm 16, and I've also spent the majority of my life in you. People that know that there's a pandemic outside, there's people wearing masks, but the mask isn't gonna 100% protect you, but they need to go to work to feed their family because they're not gonna be able to get benefits to support themselves or benefits to support themselves completely. And they're not getting the grants and the businesses that they need to support their families financially. They need to go out to support themselves because they either die from Corona or they die because they don't have the money to live. I think people who aren't in these situations are like naive, but you see, like white middle class uni boys partying in the pandemic with all their friends, like groups of 50, 60. And then when outbreaks do happen, it's all pinned on us. Like, mm -hmm. Oh, it's because there's like 10 people in one house, but you can't do anything about that. Mm -hmm. Are they supposed to buy another house? Most definitely. If people had the ability to buy the other house, they would. I feel yeah. like that's something that for some reason goes over people's heads. It's just like, like it's nobody wants to live in the overcrowded house. Nobody wants to go to work if they're mm -hmm. unsafe. I found those conversations to be really bizarre when people were trying to look specifically for biological factors as to why Asian black communities were having significantly much more higher COVID rate. If you go back to certain countries in Africa, like Kenya did extremely well in dealing with COVID-19. The virus spread rapidly, but people weren't dying to that same impact. And I think these are social issues, right? The reason why these communities are dying at far greater extent is housing, is because they have jobs in which they didn't have the opportunity to self-isolate or it's jobs where it's very forward-facing roles they are the brunt of the service economy they keep the country moving and i think the conversation we were having on ppe limiting that to the nhs was a huge detriment to the black and asian community in newham because being a bus driver was one of the most high-risk roles you could have done during the pandemic and bus drivers were picking people up from hospital you know and we've seen cases where they've gone on to die and after contracting coronavirus and of course like certain communities have much higher 
rates of diabetes or more likely maybe to be overweight. There are definitely conversations to be had, but again, those are social factors about who has the ability to exercise, who has access to gyms, who has access to parks and outside space, who has access to decent food. The impact of COVID on the local area and kind of the, the BAME differences, that didn't really surprise me. These are things that have been here pre-COVID and they're not recognised. COVID just made it more apparent how disproportionate and the huge health inequalities that we do have here, the poor outcomes. So COVID was just an additive factor, if you're asking me. It's nothing new that's happened for our area. I'm Rehana. I'm a local GP working in Newham and I've been born and brought up here so I'm very much new and orientated. Having grown up here I have a better understanding of the population and also I can understand their narratives and where they come from. These are people that have significant language barriers. They're not as digitally diverse as the rest of the population in the country. They can't easily access everything that's coming out on YouTube or on Twitter or whatever it is. There was a lot of stories going around amongst the kind of the older generations that if you end up in hospital, you will end up dying. So people were getting very sick and not going to hospital. And I've heard this through friends and families because they were kind of telling each other and messaging each other on WhatsApp, whatever you do, don't go into hospital because you will end up dying. The thing that everybody wants to talk about is people dying on their own uh, or people not being able to say goodbye or people having to say goodbye through iPads. I'm beginning to understand now when people talk about what a good death is, what that actually means and what dignity in death means and how the implications of infection control and all of the thing around the lack of PPE, how that has meant that so many people haven't had a good death. And then the other thing is about why, particularly in Newham, about why people didn't go to hospital and why vast parts of the community were not there and didn't get the support that they needed and the very complex morality around is it better to die at home with your family or is it better to be in hospital and for attempts to be made to save your life but that might be quite an unpleasant experience and you still might die at the end of it. I'm James, I'm an artist and a mental health activist. I work under the name of The Vacuum Cleaner. Exposure is a project of listening to health workers from Newham, capturing their stories, making portraits of those that exist forever, because they're going to be in the Welcomes Archive. The emergency department at Newham had one psychologist to look at staff wellbeing. No other department at Newham had any mental health support during the first wave. I have people coming to me and saying, I haven't spoken to anybody about what I've been through. There are stories that I am hearing about the effects on learning disabled people that are profoundly distressing. It's really 
hurting to hear that. And particularly, there's an intersection here between learning disabled people and people whose first language is not English. So the fact that translation services were moved online and what happens when communication needs to be in accessible ways and then translated into different languages, how that affects people. The pure rage I'm hearing from health workers about the fact that 111 is an English-only services. And I've now interviewed, I think, 28 health workers. 26 have said, I hated the clapping. A lot of them are saying, what I want is a pay rise. What I want is more nurses, more staff. What I want is a new hospital, a new one that's fit for purpose. You can see the Olympic Stadium in lots of different bits of Newham or, you know, the whole really built up bit of Stratford. And that, for me, as I was rushing back home, became this huge sign of just how much the Olympic Games and gentrifying force had utterly failed that community. They were promised decent jobs. They were promised decent housing. They were told that money would flood in and it did, but it obviously didn't do so equally. And I think that's why I had so many people tweeting at me to be like, I can't believe this is a new I live in new This is terrifying. Not really realising what those in the much poorer bit of the borough were going through. We live in a very atomized society. We live in a very individualist, capitalist society, which brings about these feelings of shame. If you are working class, there's a feeling of shame of like, I have made it this way or like, I'm not earning enough money and it's on me to do better. And there's a real lack of collectivist thinking. And that is one of the main hurdles that I see. And it's for me to encourage both myself and others to support people to step into their agency and to ask the right questions that are going to bring about this sense of like, I could do something about my situation and I can do something that would lead to an overall change. The community standing together on the face of a crisis that is trying to rip a community apart. For me, the fact that people can still stay strong despite the forces that are quite often more powerful than us, we're still here, is like a big thing. I'm just refusing to give up. It's not always all positive, is how I'm feeling. You can't be positive all the time, but it's a different thing to practice hope is to say that actually we don't have a choice. My favourite place that I went to quite regularly and I still go to every morning, I go to meditate there, is Wonsted Flats, which is loads of loads of green space with small pockets of little forests where you can sit and listen to the birds, the parakeets, I even saw an owl there, which was, I felt like a sign from God and a magical moment where the owl just flew in on top of the branch. I looked up, it looked down on me, we stared at each other for 10 seconds and then it flew off to another branch and then another owl sat on that branch and then they flew off together. And I was just like, oh praise be to God, I am watched and I am looked after and everything's going to be okay. And that space was a real source of love wisdom, tranquility and peace in a very, very chaotic world. <laughs>